Okay, welcome to the podcast. Uh, here we talk about sustainability, um, responsible travel, and we touch on organizations and people that are doing the right thing. Um, we're speaking with Dave Butch, co-founder, CEO of Jaunt, that is jauntmotors.com. And uh, I was referred to him by Aaron Boermans. Now, Dave, he recycles, or actually I should say upcycles, Land Rovers, because he makes them into electric vehicles, EVs. Um, I actually drove a Land Rover in the army. It was absolutely great, even though a little bit uh, temperamental, I should say. Um, so we spoke about why, um, how much, the difference to the environment, and much, much more. Uh, without further ado, here's a podcast with Dave in Australia. Okay, Burns, obviously I, I was recommended to you uh, by Aaron, Aaron Boomons. I know you know him and I know that you as well that you know the person that I interviewed last who went just to Dubai. Yeah, so I've only, I've met him, I, I've shaken his hand and, I, and I've said about three words to him, but um, yes. obviously at the end of his journey, you know, across the world, really, he spent a fair bit of time here in Australia. So um, very familiar with, yeah, with, with his, I guess, his first journey uh, in an EV. And um, I drove myself a Land Rover um, in the army mm. in Holland. In Holland, you have to go into yep. the army, well, at least when I was younger, uh, for 14 months. Uh, it was actually very, very nice uh, driving a Land Rover. Um, obviously, nowadays, they would say it's incredibly bad for the environment to drive a Land Rover. Uh, what you're doing is you are actually converting these to EV vehicles, electrical vehicles, uh, which is fantastic. Um, can you tell me a little bit um about about this why land rovers first of all what would text you to land rovers mm. so that land rovers have a really uh i guess you know interesting history around the world and and particularly in australia being you know part of the british commonwealth mm-hmm. uh back in you know back when they were released you know after the second world war we were you know buying we were still very much very british here in australia and and so a lot of my, most of our imports came from that part of the world and so it was most of our vehicles came from that way too. And then um, as we had a big uh, sort of infrastructure building program and we were accepting a lot of refugees from Europe, there was a whole massive government building program, dams and hydroelectricity and all these kinds of things. And the government was buying thousands of them. And the story is in the 50s, 60s, that Australia was buying about half the Land Rovers being made. Um, so that was government was buying them. Uh, farmers were buying them. You know, it was it was a boom time for for you know a lot of parts of the world, and so that was the one four wheel drive vehicle that was available to us. And and so that there's so many here that they had, and then you know Australian military also had you know used them up until uh, very re- still still some in service, but up until very recently they'd been the Australian military vehicle too. So Land Rovers on one hand have a very have a quite iconic uh, place in, in Australian history. I think that whether, you know, so a lot of people might associate that their grandparents or their uncle or someone they know had one on a farm. And even if they didn't, I think that that association with Land Rovers, you know, you, you've seen a documentary and it's set in Africa and it's all, all these kind of things, the, the shape of that vehicle, whether you call it a Jeep or a Land Cruiser or whatever, it is such an iconic shape that it triggers some kind of nostalgia in, in people. And it, it been, means both an old car, but it also means sort of adventure and all, all of the things that I guess 
car companies these days spend a lot of money to try and get you to believe that their car is freedom and adventure and all of these things. I think old Land Rovers genuinely have that that pedigree. So there's this great sort of, I guess, emotional marketing reason um, in one sense, but there's also a lot of practical reasons. So one of them is that I'm familiar with them and I've owned Land Rovers for a long time. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, it was that, that, that there is thousands of them here in Australia they're, they, they're relatively cheap to buy, or they were. I think COVID has pushed the prices of second-hand cars up around the world. Mm-hmm. But being aluminium, um, so the, the body is aluminium, which is, which is unusual. Uh, and what that has meant is that, yes, there was thousands from the 60s and 70s in particular. They were Toyota, to be honest, came out with a better vehicle in the late 70s, and all the farmers just kind of put them in the back paddock and put them in the shed. And they've sat there. And because they're aluminium, they haven't rusted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other great thing is that, um, for us anyway, was that Land Rover didn't really change much. So uh, a Land Rover from 1958 has a huge number of interchangeable parts to a Land Rover from 2015. And that's one of the reasons they stopped making that classic shape. But it's also because it kind of worked. And it also means that the spare parts network is, is huge. So unlike some vehicles where if you damage a part, they're, they're, they're super rare, there is a few little things like that on a Land Rover. But for the most part, we can we know that we can buy a, you know, a, a cheap, a good and a, and a premium version of almost every single part on the car so that we're not limited. We're not spending all the money on you know, handcrafting a replacement part that, to be honest, no one might care about but is critical to the function. We can focus on the things they do care about, the electrification, the, the right paint colour, the interior trim and all of that, and and really have a parts network that is similar to a newer vehicle. Yeah, that makes, that makes sense. And obviously it is indeed that I, I associated with freedom, I associated with adventure going oh. on. You know, mm. I've been going through Africa, not with a Land Rover, but overland. Um, I, I always wanted to do that, actually, just with a Land Rover or yeah. another or, you know, one of those vehicles, just go, basically. And just go. Wherever you want to go. So for us, that that all like all of that that I've said, kind of for, for us internally, we talk about that as as trying to build a vehicle that belongs, and and we mean that in a sense of, you know, you, you're going out to you know Australia is is you know yes we have a few major capital cities, but then it's 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 pretty remote and it's lots of small towns and and rural and regional communities, and when you're driving through those places in a modern car, it doesn't quite fit and and i think that in this in the spirit of um you know we're really trying to you know upcycle and and reuse and create a circular economy around with with this stuff and part of that i think is is that what can you do that that goes beyond just the i guess intellectual benefits of reusing these materials and and saving this embedded carbon how can you create something that's better and you can do that in one way that that may be hooking into that nostalgia, but maybe hooking into that story. And so we don't want to create cars for, I guess, car fanatics. They're for normal people, but everyone can associate, you know, they don't need to know the history of Land Rover, but what they can know and can feel is that the car that they've that they now own that's been electrified was the car that used to live over that hill over there and helped plow that field or fight that bushfire or it's got a history of place and that the car individually has history 
rather than knowing the brand and the details and all of that kind of stuff that becomes part of, I guess, car culture, cars to normal people, to most people, have their own personality. And I think for us, if we can create a car that feels like it belongs because it truly has spent 50 years in, in that in that town, in that part of the world, has been rebuilt and is being then powered by locally generated electricity uh, and, and without having uh, having a very, very small footprint on the environment, that's as close as you can get to a to a vehicle belonging to, to that space. And I think, you know, we, we kind of don't talk, it kind of gets a bit cheesy maybe, but I think that that people do have a relationship with vehicles and, and do have a, um, yes, they can be appliances for commuting, but also, you know, people do form special bonds with individual cars. And I think that, that um, that's a great thing. It means people look after them. It means people keep them for longer and has, uh, has a lot of, um, you know, very real environmental benefits as well as just the fun of giving a car a name or, you know, knowing what it, what it used to do over the last few years. Absolutely. You talk about reusable um, parts that are basically everywhere in Australia. Um, but mm. obviously, if you rebuild them into EV vehicles, um, you're putting in like a whole new engine, you're putting in like a whole mm. new, basically the only thing that's probably left from, I mean, I'm just guessing here, but would that be just basically the shell, the aluminium shell? Or is there other things that you reuse as well? Or how, how, do, how yeah. do you see that? It's, it's a good question too, because it because it becomes that thing of, you know, what is the what makes a car, how much of a car is left and is it still that car, what's that, that grandfather's axe paradox, you know, like Mm -hmm. you've replaced the handle 10 times and the head of the axe five times, but it's still your grandfather's axe. Um, We sort of, we we have, there's certain, I guess there's, there's two things. We do want to keep as much as we possibly can of the vehicle because that is, is, you know, taking that embedded carbon and, and reusing it and all of the other benefits that come from, from reusing those parts. But there's also a lot of legal reasons that we we need to reuse things. So here in Australia, the the chassis, so the ladder frame of the vehicle, is what legally makes it a vehicle. Mm-hmm. If we were to put in a new chassis, that would become a 2021 or 2022 now vehicle, and would have to have airbags and crash tested and all those safety compliances for a modern car. So we must keep the chassis, and then you've got all these other components that. I think, you know, by weight, we'd be talking about, um, I think about 75% of the vehicle would be retained. Um, yes. So it's, it's you know, axles, um, chassis, all the body, all, all of that kind of stuff. But yes, we do take out the internal combustion engine. We take out all the other, basically, if you think about opening the the, the bonnet or the hood of, a, of any car, almost everything that's in there okay. has been removed by us and replaced. So... What happens to that stuff, though, is also important. So, you know, there, there's we're turning old Land Rovers into electric vehicles, but there's way more people restoring old Land Rovers and and getting them back on the road. So almost every part that we take out uh, is either, you know, if it's very bad condition, it's it's recycled. It's usually steel or aluminium. Uh, but for the, the large items, they're almost all sort of either sold or given away to people restoring other Land Rovers. So... Most of the parts get get rebirthed, get get put into uh, redone vehicles. And yeah, you're right. the 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 motor itself uh, of an of an EV, you go from having this huge motor. If people think about, you know, whatever your imagination of a car engine, mm-hmm. yeah, they're really big. An EV motor though is is more 
I don't know. It's the size of a cat. <laughs> I'm just, I'm home with my pets, right? I'm thinking about relative things um, that, that cross right, international borders. It's not that long. We're talking about something that's 40 centimetres long and, and like they're, they're heavy, they're 50 kilos, but that's nowhere near the 250, 300 kilos of, a, of an internal combustion engine. Hmm. So it's this small cylindrical thing. Most of the space uh, that you're, you're trying to find and we're trying to fit in is it's batteries. Batteries are the largest thing in an EV. So we we replace a lot of things where we're creating a higher performance vehicle. So we put better suspension on and there's a lot of other upgrades. We make our own disc brakes for the front because if you're going to make something go faster, you've got to make it stop, stop better as well. Um, so there is a whole bunch of new things, but it's uh, it's predominantly by weight, by appearance, by the majority of the car is still original. Yeah, yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Obviously, I've seen some other sites as well that do this as well. Um, one mm. of them is uh, old, not not like you do, but they just fix up old Land Rovers and actually makes them into luxury, like very, very luxury uh, oh. uh, vehicles, uh, like over Finch uh, heritage. It's basically, you know, they they. Make them actually almost better than the like you do. You make them much better than the original Land Rovers. You do it, however, yeah. in an electrical way. Um, you make it, you know, better for the environment as well. Actually, I read an article yesterday. Is there something that your target market at, at the moment you say is people really have an affiliation with the old Land Rovers? But do you look as well at people that really want to have a, a luxury Land Rover with that feeling of adventure, that feeling of 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 of, of freedom, at mm. the same time thinking about the environment, but in a very luxury way is that something that you're aiming for in the future or yeah it, it's um it, it's an interesting uh kind of thing to, to talk about luxury and, and old land rovers in the same sentence because <laughs> yeah. um, like, i drove one i yes, know <laughs> in a photograph right so oh yes little brass fittings and nice leather and all these things hmm. and that all makes them much much better but they are still a an awkward uh, ergonomically uh, an uncomfortable-ish driving position all the other things, they're an agricultural vehicle, right? So, so there's there's some companies doing amazing work and have been doing amazing work for a lot of years, um, particularly because somewhere like the United States never really had, only had a few Land Rovers. There was a few years where they, they came in, but we're talking about, you know, maybe there was one or 2,000 Land Rovers ever made it into the United States officially. So, so places like that where, you know, they love automobiles and, and rare ones are, are very valued. So there's a lot of companies, particularly in Europe, who are restoring and improving Land Rovers because they be- become a very valuable, rare vehicle once it reaches, say, the United States. And and obviously, you know, local markets as well, whether it's UK or Europe, um, people have, I think there's, there's some sort of rule of thumb where once a vehicle gets to be 40 years old, there's enough people who kind of grew up with that as a kid, have made enough money, to now want to collect that car again and have mm-hmm. that that experience, um, so so it it is interesting. I think that that for us, um, you mentioned is it Land Rover enthusiasts, and I, and I would say that the majority of our customers are not Land Rover enthusiasts. Oh. Um, they're actually they're people who may have had some relationship to a Land Rover. Maybe they've been in one, or they like I said, their their grandparents had one but they're not necessarily car enthusiasts. They're people who are electric vehicle enthusiasts mm-hmm. who, or not even enthusiasts, they're people who want an electric car, but none of the electric cars on the market are them uh, in, in sort of quotation marks, whether that's because 
um, you know, they don't want to be. I think if you if you were to compare it to the um, the sort of uh, utility vehicles, the trucks, as we call them in Australia, the utes that are coming out, the Cybertruck, the Rivian, mm-hmm. particularly Cybertruck, I think a lot of people, it's hard to imagine yourself stepping out of that vehicle. Who are you when you pull up in that car? Yeah. It's a very different impression. Well, it has been delayed so, for a couple more years. So they have to yeah, wait. <laughs> well, yeah, we're all going to have to wait for a lot yeah, of years. So yeah, yeah. whether that ever comes to Australia, I don't know. So, but but there's a there's a thing where you know cars do represent, you know, they they like your clothes. You know, where as soon as you're making a decision beyond a a very um, I guess a very mainstream car, which which do great jobs for commuting or whatever. When you're buying a distinct car, it becomes a, a real personal choice, and and or or it's uh, for some of our customers, it is truly about utility. They need a four wheel drive to do to get to their farm or whatever it might be. So for them, it's it's having a vehicle. They want an electric vehicle. They they want a four wheel drive for some for whatever reason, and they and they love that shape. And the fact that it's a Land Rover for some of them, that's a bonus. For others, they don't even really know what that means. Um, in a sense of, it's an old four-wheel drive, mm-hmm. and it's a, and it's a beautiful shape. So that's most of our customers, and I think that then, you know, where that crosses over, or can't help but cross over into the idea of luxury, um, and and perhaps really you you could just you could say where it crosses over into being an expensive vehicle is because the EV conversion process is expensive. Is it? There's a lot yeah. of there's a lot of the parts are expensive, but then the labor is very, very expensive. So once you've spent a certain amount of money on a car, well, why not spend a little bit more money? <laughs> so it, it kind of becomes this thing where we we know that by the time that to, to make someone happy with that investment, it needs to be of a certain quality. Um, and, and I think like you've seen with a lot of, um, I mean, I guess Tesla as a prime example, start with low volume, uh, expensive premium vehicles, and then move into mass market things, and and that's what will you know be happening with us too. So we we start with these higher, these lower volume, higher end sort of premium hero vehicles, and where that ends up is being able to offer a a, a conversion kit for someone to install themselves, or something that could be done in a workshop with you know a couple of weeks turnaround, 50, 60 hours of labour turnaround, and and be can be something that is. Uh, I'm never going to say affordable compared to or price comparative as we see with EVs now. They're not, they don't match the price of internal combustion vehicles, but it can be something that people can afford that initial outlay and, and see a longer term return on investment rather than this being a, like, I guess, a luxury item. Yeah. Obviously, you talk about cost and you talk about labor mm. time that goes in there. How, how long does it take you at the moment to really convert it? Um, what is the cost compared to, say, a, a normal uh, vehicle that you buy, uh, four-wheel drive, um, that might have the same kind of image but is not available at, as yet. Um, obviously, you have the new Hummer now, which is an EV um, mm-hmm. vehicle, um, which, which might attract a lot of people as well. But that's very, very expensive as well right, at the same time. Yeah. At the so, 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 yeah, with, with, in terms of cost, um, if, if we project out the cost of what, you know, vehicles cost, those those upcoming um sort of four-wheel drive EVs that are coming out. Uh, I think in Australia, like it is in Europe, you know, you, you you look at prices of cars in America and it's crazy cheap. Once they arrive, you know, hmm. uh, in our part of the world, it's not just, a, you know, it's not just convert the American dollar to Australian dollar. It's add all the other, you know, taxes and duties and shipping and all those kinds of things. So 
So we compare in that sense to a to a high end four wheel drive. Um, but so, but of course, if you were to compare features, well, we'd have a lot less um, because an old Land Rover naturally has a lot less features than some of these vehicles. Mm-hmm. Um, so it would have, you know, on paper, our cars would have uh, less features, less comfort, uh, less range, less performance. Uh, now, we'd like to think that's counteracted by having uh, much more character. Uh, and in some cases, in some cases, more utility uh, and more capability. Um, but it's um, yeah. Look, it, it's it's something that becomes expensive to do a do a conversion now, and and a big part of that is volume. So, you know, I was talking about this the other day um, uh, with with one of our team where we were you know looking at we we buy a certain obviously there's thousands of parts in the systems that we're putting in the in the cars. One of the connectors that we use, and we use maybe I think fifteen of these connectors across the car. We pay thirty Australian dollars for one of those connectors because we're buying in volumes of um, of sort of ten, twenty at a time. If we were to be buying in volumes of a thousand, that connector would be about eight dollars. So it's a third of the price if we jump up in in volume, you know, in terms of ten times the volume, which isn't mass manufacturing vehicles. It's still very small scale, but if you extrapolate that across all the parts that we are. Uh, you know, we're buying and putting into a vehicle. It quite realistically can be something that we could look at, at 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 a jump in volume, an exponential jump in volume. We would be, we could potentially be a third. Our parts cost could be a third, and then you add in the fact that well, if you're doing that volume, well, whole subassemblies are getting built, uh, not by us and not by our hands. They're getting built by you know, built by machines or they're getting built somewhere where, to be honest, labour is labor is cheaper, but also mm-hmm. labour is more efficient. There is, you know, if we're thinking about building, um, you know, there's obviously a lot of wires, you know, wires to control the switches and buttons and monitor the batteries. And so hundreds of metres of wire throughout the vehicle. Um, there's nowhere in Australia that can automate that process at scale, but we could go and speak to any one of probably... 10,000 manufacturers in China to to automate that who are doing it for global OEMs. So mm-hmm. there's so many areas where we are expensive because we're doing things, I guess, in a very old-fashioned way, which is doing them all in in our workshop primarily. So mm-hmm. we, we can see a we can see a point in time where if we can make that that jump, then we get to something that is that is uh, I guess yeah, genuinely affordable. And in Australia, the market is quite interesting. We are the largest per capita owners of four-wheel drives in the world. So even you think about Americans buying big trucks and everything, Australians Mm -hmm. way more. Now, our trucks might not be as big, but more of us own them. So this huge market for for four-wheel drives, SUVs, and a very expensive, um, I guess that puts our average vehicle cost up quite a bit because they're much more expensive than buying a Volkswagen Golf or something like that. So we've got people who are going out and spending 80,000 Australian dollars on a uh, on a pickup truck and then going and spending another 30, 40, 50,000 dollars on accessories. So bigger tires, upgraded suspension, bull bars, all these things that uh, I think that you know people love to accessorize and personalize their car, but also here in Australia, everyone wants to make sure that any car that they own could next week, if they needed to, 
cross the desert and go deep into the outback. Now, they may never do that, mm-hmm. but, but they want to be able to. Everyone's convinced uh-huh. that they need to be able to do that. So, so the idea that people have spent, um, you know, above $100,000, $120,000 and have that invested into their four-wheel drive, if we can come along and say, well, you know, yes, there's these new vehicles on the market and they're going to be another hundred, they're going to be $150,000, $200,000 here, that we can convert your vehicle to an EV for forty dollars or $50,000, that starts to be now. It's not going to be for everyone, of course, and and there's going to be other things that that we can't offer with that. But it's it goes from being a niche offering in a 1960s or 70s Land Rover to a technology system that can be installed on a car that you might have bought last year. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. And obviously, I've seen something on your website about a partnership with a school, Bendigo Tech School. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what what is that all about? Um, can you tell me a little yeah. bit? Uh... So so I guess it, you know we've we've been really keen on um, you know bringing in the community as much as possible, and I think that we we had um, I can't remember how it quite started, but I think we were uh, the tech school got in contact with us. The tech schools are a relatively new thing here, where it's um, children who are in high school uh, in sort of you know fifteen sixteen. Um, they are able to do, they're still going to high school, but they can do sort of extracurricular stuff at the tech school and it teaches, um, yes, it's advanced technology, but it's also design thinking, um, manufacturing, advanced manufacturing, all these kinds of things. So they were starting an uh, electric mobility program mm-hmm. and they got in contact with us because they would have, they were like, our dream version would be to create, uh, to work on a project where we could build a, a, a full road legal electric vehicle. Uh, and they got in contact with us, and it all kind of, it all kind of fit. It, it took us a few years to, well, a few years. It took us about six months to work out all the details, and then it got going. And education, things go a little bit slower. But um, so where we're working at, what we're working with now is that the uh, their program, which is their girls in uh, STEM, so girls in science, technology, um, uh, engineering, and maths, is a program so it's basically uh, girls who we'd, we'd say they'd be in year 10 so that means they're about 15 um they're they're running a program where they're the project managers they're sourcing all the things they're doing a lot of the labor themselves they're restoring an old range rover uh we're providing the electric vehicle systems which they'll install they're working with uh partners so bendigo is a town of um, about 150,000 people, okay. um, and so a small, a small town, but 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 big enough to have all these facilities. Uh, they're working with them to to restore with you know private enterprise and government to restore the vehicle. That vehicle will then be uh, available to rent uh, for anyone outside of the train station. So there's a lot of tourism comes in at the train station, and then there'll be this electric vehicle that's there charging. Uh, and available to rent for anyone. So it's a sort of an 18-month-long project, but it's it's quite exciting because obviously it's a cool program that I wish I could have done at school, mm-hmm. but it's, it's you know, you can, an electric vehicle and, and any any electric vehicle, I'm obviously talking about we build stuff that's, you know, large and carries people and puts them on the road, but the technology scale down is exactly what's in a, a, in a drone, for example, or a skateboard. So the principles of running an electric motor and managing the batteries and charging it are the same. It's just a really nice thing to work on a car scale because you can get a 
whole group of people to work on it at once mm-hmm. and it's very easy to understand rather than being microelectronics. Yeah, brilliant, actually. I, I really like that. Um, then, obviously, Erwin told me a little bit about you as well. He told me you met a member of the royal family here in the UK uh, and you asked him <laughs> yes. to donate some Laros. Did ever anything happen? Or? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. So, um, so we were part of a... Uh, when we were very early startup and, and, you know, really we were just a PowerPoint presentation and not much more, mm-hmm. um, we were selected as part of a, as a, as a startup to, to pitch at, um, at this thing at the government house here. And, you know, the, the big thing was that they, uh, because it had sort of royal patronage, they, they, they wanted to make sure that it didn't seem like it was just about money, like any other startup pitch. It was about connections and influence and all this kind of stuff. And so they're like, you've got to have an ask. Like, what what can you ask? Now, some people are asking, you know, whatever the brand might be. They want a connection to pitch to Richard Branson or they want to talk to the whatever it might be. And we, we didn't really know. It was an opportunity to, you know, pitch, but we didn't really know quite what to ask. So we were like, well, we know that the royal family, well, um, we're assuming they love Land Rovers. They have a lot of them. Uh, there's plenty of pictures of the Queen driving around in one. So surely they've got some spares that they would like to uh, donate for the cause, but uh, no, it never it never went anywhere. I never we never got a, uh, a confirmation or a, re- a proper reaction from that request. What a pity! What a pity! Now, actually, I read an article yesterday about electrical vehicles, and they say that actually um, they are better than than normal vehicles in the long run for the environment. Um, some people say, well, you know, what about batteries? Um, what about, you know, uh, that this was a problem still at the moment, but they say it is definitely better. Um, are batteries just an obstacle that, that might be solved in the future? Is that going to be recyclable? What, what do you think? Have you Obviously, you're in the industry. I'm sure you hear a lot of rumors and everything. Um, does it really make a big difference at the moment for the environment, do you reckon? Uh, yes. Is the, is the answer, but I hesitate because obviously the vehicles that we're building are not uh, necessarily someone's alternative to, uh, you know, it's not their primary car, for example. So when we're building cars that are someone's second car, can we really say that someone having a second car or a third car is great for the environment? I'm not sure. But in terms of electric vehicles as a whole, completely in every way in any measure in any study they are better for the environment and and better no matter where you live and how your energy is generated so so there's those few arguments where the you know the creation of the the components so the the motor uh, you know might be rare earth magnets in that motor there's obviously the the lithium or the cobalt in the batteries, all those chemicals in the batteries, the manufacturing and, and construction of those batteries, all of those things have an environmental impact, of course. Um, yes, that you know, mining a lot of you know, huge amount of the minerals that are going into EV batteries globally are coming from Australia. Um, so, so on that front, we know that the, I guess the, you know, the human rights practices are, are looked after in that sense. But there is still, you know, environmental impact on, on all of that. Uh, and, and what we're seeing is the industry moving towards much, much cleaner, better battery chemistry, including things like sodium ion batteries, which is literally so salt, right? And so, so there's, there's battery technology that as the world electrifies. And if we think 
by 2050, every single vehicle is going to be electric basically on the road everywhere um, because you're probably not going to be able to buy fuel or unless you're making it yourself. Mm. At that point, the chemistry that's being used in these batteries is going to be quite different to what it is today. The, the electric vehicles are still a very, very small part of the you know, global um, vehicle fleet. But, but even if we look at it today and we look at the, you know, the, the carbon impact, we look at the environmental impact of building an electric vehicle and running it for a normal vehicle lifespan, it is still less. And that is still less, you know, wonderful if you are charging that vehicle from your home solar and you have renewable energies in the grid wherever you live, um, whether, you know, whether that's hydro or solar or wind or whatever it might be. Um, here, in, here where I live in Melbourne in Victoria, most of our electricity is generated by brown coal. Uh, however, you know, we're, we're, it's, it's getting better. And even in the last few years, it's got hugely better. We had a few months last year where 50% of our energy in our grid was from uh, renewable sources. I know that most of the vehicles we sell are going to, you know, people have uh, their own home solar and, and, and almost all electric vehicle charge points are, you know, entirely run from renewable energy around Australia. So, even if they were charging by coal, you're still dealing with something that the regulatory controls on a coal-fired power plant are very strict. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of effort going into to make sure that those are as, you know, pollute as little as possible compared to an in, multiple internal combustion engines that they're, that obviously be powering, um, who, who here in Australia in particular, we don't have regular emissions checks. Um, we don't have regular roadworthies, all of these things. Your vehicle could be as polluting as, as you know, no one's checking, basically. So even when you, so if you consider all those things, you consider the whole life cycle of the vehicle, um, their electric vehicles, I, I was thinking I was looking at a study that it was like even in the worst case scenario over an average lifespan, you're still, uh, you, the worst would be that you'd be uh, basically 70% of the, pollutants by using an electric vehicle but in a, in a best case scenario it's down to sort of like 20 or 30 percent and then you consider on top of things i think that a lot of um i think some of these arguments that that can often come in when the world is changing whether it's to electric vehicles or it's to some other technology whether it's environmentally led or, or whatever mm -hmm. that people tend to do a lot of research into the I guess, the negative argument. They research, you know, it, it's a human nature thing to be, uh, I want to say, af afraid of change. I mean, I think the, the, the psychological term would be uncertainty avoidance or something like that. New things are scary. Doing things that are different are fundamentally, you know, changing us and changing society are scary. So people look into the impacts, and obviously social media amplifies this, but look into the impacts of the new thing without necessarily looking into the impacts and the details of the old thing because it's accepted and we've been using oil products for 150 years, more, 200 years. So you might have seen that that um, that study recently too or I think it was it was like an infographic that, that I think was in my LinkedIn feed a few times and it was basically that global shipping, uh, you know, shipping is, is, is hugely polluting um, obviously, shipping is is you know, carrying all the products that we, most of the products that we use and, and transport around the world. But forty percent of shipping is just transporting fossil fuels. So, as soon as you transition to an electric vehicle, you 
that that power is generated locally. Now, very rarely is it is it from coal that you know. I'm an Australian, right? Australia yeah. is exporting well, maybe coal. Maybe in Australia, China that's not burn. the same everywhere, right? But in Australia, you say you're charging at home, you've got solar power. I can't see that. I'm in London. I can't see anyone having here solar <laughs> power you know, yeah. on the but roof here. energy is generated locally. Suddenly, you've taken out that that effort of transporting fossil fuels around the world. So the, the flow-on effects, I think it's very hard to... Um, you know, it, it's you know having to look at a global study and a whole lifespan and life cycle, it's different everywhere you live, but... But very much, it's it's a better technology now. For us, I'd say that, uh, like you know, on one hand, I say that we are we we are at the moment creating cars that are an additional car for the most part for people. However, we are recycling batteries, so the batteries that we're putting in our vehicles are all from Teslas that have crashed, basically. So so the you know there's you're able to reuse a lot of this technology and there's a lot of companies now that are also not just recycling the the metals in batteries but refurbishing the batteries and bringing them back to 80% and beyond of their original capacity. So I think we'll get much much better at reusing that energy and even when a you know a, an electric vehicle is kind of the most extreme scenario that a that a battery can be put under huge amounts of energy needed to accelerate a vehicle quickly people want incredibly quick charging which puts a lot of stress on the batteries all of these factors are mean that that the batteries in EVs are have to be some of the most premium that are that are created but when a when a battery is sort of i guess past its use by date in a vehicle it is a fantastic home energy battery, home storage battery. It's fantastic for all these other applications. And so it's not just a, the vehicle's done, you know, you know, three or four years, it's, it's a bit old and someone wants the new model and throw it all away. The value of that battery is still enormous to a lot of people and we're seeing whole industries spring up to, to reuse, recycle, repurpose all those batteries. I did not know that, actually. That's uh, very interesting indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, what is the plan for the future? Um, uh, besides Land Rovers, are you moving into like other iconic uh, cars? There's quite a few I've seen in America. You have some uh, old cars, some old Ford Mustangs, and some mm-hmm. they're trying to rebuild. Is that something that you're looking into? Or, or maybe land, land uh, cruisers, perhaps, the other land cruisers and stuff y- like that? So. Yeah, uh, anything with land in the name. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so yeah, there's some there's some brilliant work being done, and I think you know here in Australia we're often inspired by stuff that goes on in in Europe and the United States that that's sort of a few years ahead of us. And um, we we sort of made a decision early on that that we feel like we can we can build great four wheel drives um, uh, for all the you know all the reasons that Australia has bad transport emissions because we buy a lot of four wheel drives. It means we really have a great understanding of four wheel drives, and there is a genuine need in a lot of cases to use one. And so we have a great industry around four-wheel drive uh, products that that are distributed and sold globally and are just an innate understanding. And so we feel like we don't need to compete to build, you know, guys in America are always going to have that, that credibility to build the best Mustang or people in Europe are going to have that credibility to build the best, best Porsche conversions, for example. But we think that we can really, we know how to build a true four-wheel drive, uh, something that can live up to that capability, live up to that, I don't know, the legend or whatever of those original cars and do everything because our engineers know how to build four-wheel drives. So we want to continue doing that. And and that, yes, very obviously leads into 
or what's the next iconic four-wheel drive that came out, and it is the Land Cruiser. So we, we see that we will sort of quickly move through the, I guess, the decades of four-wheel drive development and move through into the 70s and then into the 80s, and there's some really amazing models. And there's a few things that they need to meet. You know, there's some, there's some brilliant cars. We don't want to do one-offs. Um, there's some brilliant cars, though, that have, you know, an amazing parts network. Obviously, you know, a scene is iconic and a, and a very, um, you know, a valuable in their own right. But, um, but, but also, you know, they're, they're, they haven't rusted out. There's parts available, all of those other things that, that fit into that. And there's a certain volume of them to, to work with so we can, I guess, uh, justify and, and, and put in that R&D to build something really nice. So we, we never wanted to be a, hey, bring any car to us and we'll convert it kind of workshop. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of those are going to spring up. I think a lot of people, that's going to be the transition to a lot of restoration places, a lot of mechanics, it's going to have to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'll be, doing, they'll be doing amazing work fitting kits that are, and systems that are developed. But we wanted to be the people, I guess, developing those those systems that are used. And so we see for us that we'll continue to build vehicles, complete vehicles in our workshop, mm-hmm. but the growth of our business will really be developing systems that we can distribute to other workshops, both in Australia and, and globally. Okay, that was the podcast with Dave Butch, co-founder, CEO of Jaunt. You can find more information, latest news on sustainable.news. And you have been listening to Peter, Peter de Vries. Thank you very much for doing so. And don't forget to tune in next time.